been waking our way through 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 6 now. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Collins spoke to us about some of the preparations that were made for the building of the temple. This week, we come uh, to the actual construction of the temple uh, itself. 1 Kings chapter 6. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house and ten cubits deep in front of the house, and he made for the house windows with recessed frames. Uh, He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle story was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall, in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it. And he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. Uh, The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. Uh, The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house uh, to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold, and he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high, 
high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. Uh, it was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. Uh, the height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer room. On the floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. Uh, The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. Uh, So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square And two doors of cypress wood, the two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications, uh, he was seven years in building it. This ends this reading in God's uh, word. Let's uh, look to the Lord again in prayer. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we um, thank you so much for this account of the building of the temple Uh, Lord, all scripture is breathed out by you. It's profitable uh, for us, uh, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Uh, We ask, Lord, that your word would now have this effect in our lives for the glory of your name, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Uh, amen. Well, um, most of us, Uh, enjoy looking into other people's homes, Um, especially if they're famous and if their home is really nice. Uh, We were recently out in California and along the shoreline, uh, not far from where my parents live, it was pointed out to us uh, by someone that that was a house that was owned by Mariah Carey. As that was pointed out, you could see several necks begin to turn that direction, and you could see how they long to look inside such a house. What must it be uh, inside uh, that house? People's homes often tell us uh, something about uh, who they are. There's a fascination, isn't there, with uh, even television programs that take us into the homes of the uh, of the wealthy, of celebrities, especially of royalty, to be able to look into. A palace is really something extraordinary. Now, as we read this chapter uh, together, it may have, on the one hand, seemed like a bit of a boring chapter, especially if you're not into construction. Uh, If you find construction fascinating, you may have 
really been interested in every line. But we need to remember as well that the description that is given here is actually a description of God's house itself, a house more important than the palace of any monarch, than the mansion of any celebrity. This is the God-given description of the house of the Lord. And all of it was made according to God's design. He was the one who designed his own house. First uh, Chronicles 28 and verse 19 makes that clear, uh, that a divine pattern was shown to David, and David then passed on that pattern to Solomon. And it was according to that pattern that Solomon built uh, the temple, the same way that God uh, minutely described how the tabernacle was to be constructed to Moses. Now, the temple was a house made according to God's uh, design. And so I think there are a number of lessons for us to learn out of the construction of this temple. And I'm going to point out three different things in our sermon today. The first is this, is that the temple represented God's settled dwelling among his people. The temple represented God's settled dwelling among his people. Uh, Secondly, we're going to see that the temple tells us about the splendor of our God. And third, that the temple was maintained on the condition of the king's perfect obedience. So the temple represented God's settled dwelling among his people. That's verses 1 through 10. Secondly, the temple tells us about the splendor of our God, verses 14 through 38. And then lastly, we're going to return to verses 11 through 13 and see that the temple was maintained on the condition of the king's perfect obedience. Well, first of all, uh, we see that the temple represented God's settled dwelling among his people. Did you notice uh, the word that was used to describe this temple uh, time and again, especially throughout these early verses of the chapter? It was the house. Verse, uh, Verse one, he began to build the house of the Lord. Verse two, the house that King Solomon built for Uh, the Lord. And as it goes to describe this building, time and again, it uses the word house. And we must not allow the wonder of that word to escape us. Here, the infinite God, the God whose home is in heaven, here condescends to identify with his people and builds a house right in the middle of them. He comes to dwell among his people. The infinite God of this universe is not a God who is separate from us, but a God who, when he saves us, comes among us. And indeed, the very goal of God's covenant grace, you remember how it was at first revealed to Abraham and has been repeated in various ways throughout the scripture, is that God would be our God And we should be his people. That to be saved is to come into this covenant relationship with God. A covenant relationship of intimacy. And in fact, intimacy so close that the Lord himself deigns to establish a house in the midst of his people. And so this temple represents God's presence among his covenant people. And that's illustrated by the rooms of this temple. And we can put up that uh, first, uh, that one slide. Uh, here, I just 
uh, put this up just so you could see a little bit of uh, the, the picture that's described here. This is kind of the floor plan, so to speak. Uh, we have three different rooms described, uh, kind of running from east to west. On the first place, we have the vestibule, or what we might call the porch or the forecourt here. Uh, then inside, we have the nave or the main room, what might be described as the holy place or the outer sanctum where the priests themselves uh, performed their ministry. And then further west, we had the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies, the place where the ark dwelt, which indicated God's special presence. Now, around this temple, there were these side rooms that were used uh, uh, to store various belongings uh, in uh, the temple. So we can take that slide down now. Uh, now, in many ways, uh, this temple looks very similar, doesn't it, to the tabernacle? I mean, it it's looks almost identical in terms of what the basic room is, the, the basic structure here. And it is the same thing as the tabernacle, but now in permanent form. Uh, the temple was exactly twice the size of the tabernacle. So it was larger and grander. It was made with large stones uh, that were uh, hewn and fitted, prepared at the quarry. It's interesting. It says that uh, all of the stones were prepared at the quarry and not on site. Um, and commentators think that was to preserve kind of the peace of the building uh, of the temple site. The temple was to be a place of peace, peace between God and man. And so none of the loud noises of construction were heard uh, at the temple site uh, itself. There weren't any instruments of construction there. Uh, but rather, uh, the, rather uh, these stones, uh, huge stones, uh, were established. And this temple that was so much grander, it was larger and so much grander than the tabernacle, uh, was established. Uh, this is a settled sanctuary for God among his people. And the author intends to draw our attention to this, I think, even in the time indication that's given in verse 1. Uh, verse 1 says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now you say, okay, that's just ordinary. He's just telling us when, when he did this. But notice what the time reference is. He describes it in terms of the exodus. Uh, the exodus is when they were saved, when they were delivered. And then he's essentially saying for 480 years, you were a wandering people. The Lord had promised the land. Uh, he had promised it even to Abraham that they were going to come into this land. But now the Lord has finally, after 480 years after the Exodus, when during that time they wandered with a movable sanctuary, a tabernacle, now the Lord finally has established them uh, within the land. One writer says it this way, that God intended not only to save Israel, but to settle them. And now he brings them into a permanent settled state. And in this settled state, they have God in their very midst. And there's a parallel, 
uh, to the experience of the church uh, today. There's a sense in which the church is still in the wilderness. We have been delivered by God's mighty hand. We have been rescued from uh, our foes, from slavery to Satan and to sin. But we have not yet been brought into our permanent home, into that final promised land, which is heaven. But there is coming a day, dear friends, when you and I, who are in Jesus Christ, shall be permanently planted uh, in heaven. It's interesting, in the scriptures, uh, that final uh, uh, dwelling place is represented not so much as a tent, but as a city. We're not going to be nomads, but we will be settled citizens in heaven, and God will permanently, immovably be established uh, among us. The dwelling place of God is now going to be permanently, immovably with man. There's a lesson I think, in the fact here in the Old Testament that it took 480 years between the Exodus and the establishment of the temple. 480 years, that was a long time. Okay, I mean, that's the same amount of time from us, from the time of the Reformation until now. That's how long it took that these were a wandering people, not fully established in the land, not fully settled. And friends, it feels like for you and I in the church of Jesus Christ sometimes, that we are still wanderers. And with every trial and every time that God seems distant, with every persecution against the people of God, every time that we feel threatened by a godless culture, every time that we're betrayed, every season when we lack and we feel unsettled, we want to cry out, Lord, how long is it going to be until we're finally settled in our home? Know this, that even though it took four, just like it took 480 years, but the Lord did it. He fulfilled his promises to his people. That temple was established. So it is with you and with me. We cry out how long, but in God's timetable, the timing is perfect. He will establish you and me in that permanent dwelling place with God in our midst. He will bring us into his eternal city into that everlasting kingdom of peace. Let's trust him for that. So that's the first thing we see out of this passage in the first ten verses, that the temple represented God's settled dwelling among his people. But the next thing I want to see is that the temple tells us about the splendor of our God. Uh, In verses 14 through 38, we have a a glance into uh, the inner... um, uh, uh, into the inner decoration of, uh, uh, of this temple. It was a place that the ordinary Israelite would have never been able to go. And here they have a description of what it's like inside this temple. And the description of this temple tells us about the God whose temple it is. And so, with the description here, we are given clues, indicators of the the character of our our God. There's a few things that I want us to see. The first thing is that uh, this temple tells us about God's beauty. It tells us about God's beauty. Uh, Verses 15 through 18 tell us that he... Line the, yep, we can put up that second slide. That would be fine. Yep. 
So there's just kind of, a, again, a, a sort of cross-section into uh, what this temple would have uh, appeared to be like, okay? Uh, and the first thing that we read, verses 15 through 18, is that the Lord, or that uh, Solomon lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. He covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. So uh, wood, you remember... In chapter 5, we read about where all this wood was, was, was uh, obtained from Hiram, king of Tyre. And uh, it was expensive wood. It was ornate uh, uh, decoration. Uh, but not only were the walls all lined with cedar and the floor made of cypress, it appears as gold in there because we're going to soon see the whole thing then was overlaid with gold, but we are told then there was intricate, ornate decoration that was carved into this wood. You see that in verse 18. Uh, The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. Uh, Elsewhere, we read uh, of these doors, that there were cherubim and that there were palm trees and that there were flowers that were carved. And so to step into this temple was to see the most intricate uh, woodworking, Beautiful, gorgeous, ornate carvings, artistic design of the highest caliber. It was beautiful inside this temple. And doesn't the beauty of this temple uh, give us a picture, really, of the beauty of God himself? Our God is a beautiful God. This is why... When he made creation, when he created this world, he created a world that is beautiful. Uh, to go out into, into nature with your eyes wide open to the creation around you makes you recognize what, a beaut- what beautiful handiwork it is. To look up at the, the evening sky. What a God of beauty that's created that. And what's more, he's made us in his image as creators as people who have an aesthetic sense, a sense of beauty, and who can create beauty out of the things that we made. Why is that? It is because our God is supremely, it's reflective of a God who is of infinite and supreme beauty himself. Our aesthetics find their root in the being of uh, God uh, himself. He is a beautiful uh, God, and the temple tells us something of the beauty of this God. Uh, But the second thing that the temple indicates to us is God's glory. God's glory. We see this in verses 19 through 22. Uh, The inner sanctuary, okay, that's the Holy of Holies. He prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Uh, The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. Okay, perfect symmetry, a square. But then he overlaid it with what? Pure gold. He overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. He drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. The whole altar that belonged in the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. What word is repeated time and again? It's the word gold. There was gold everywhere inside the temple. Imagine it, a structure of this size overlaid with 
pure gold everywhere. I mean, gold has always been recognized as a costly, valuable uh, a metal. It's a sign of extraordinary luxury and wealth. You and I own very little gold, if any. It seems that kings and queens have more gold than we do in their, in their palaces. But to have, as it were, this whole dwelling place of God overlaid in sparkling, dazzling gold everywhere you look was an indicator, was it not, of the glory of this God. There was no better way of expressing his glory than uh, this, this gold. Now, God is, of course, far more glorious than gold is. But it was an expression, a representation of the glory of this God. And so God's beauty, God's glory. But the third thing that we uh, see indicated by this temple is God's holiness. God's holiness. We then read in verse 23 that in the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. And then it describes these magnificent angels, these two angels that filled up the holy of holies, stretching all their wings, stretching all of the way across uh, the, the holy of holies. These represented the... Uh, these angels represented, or these angels are holy creatures who worship a, a holy God. And there were angels that were decorating the various doors and various places all throughout the temple uh, building. It was a reminder that to be in the presence of God was to be surrounded by uh, these countless numbers of, of holy angels who were offering pure and holy worship. Uh, uh, to God. We know that the angels themselves cry out, do they not? Holy, holy, holy is uh, the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Psalm 29.2 tells us to worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And these cherubim uh, inside the temple represented uh, the holiness of God. Okay, we can take that slide down now. But you'll notice again that this representation here of or the temple indicated by this physical house placed in the middle of Israel something of the grandeur and the glory of God to be around the temple was to be filled with a sense of awe and wonder at the magnificence of this God everything about this temple was as it were pointing beyond that which is merely fading and passing and temporary to that which is infinitely beautiful, surpassingly glorious, supremely holy. It was by means of this physical structure pointing to something that was, that was even far beyond itself to that temple that is truly the, the dwelling place of God Himself in the heavens to, to the grandeur and glory of the God who comes and dwells uh, among His his people. So what can I say to us that one of our greatest needs is to have a sense of the grandeur and of the glory of this God who far surpasses us. I, 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 I want to say that I think when a man or a woman is converted, truly converted, that's one of the signs that you've been truly converted is that your, your heart, your soul begins to be, to be filled with a sense that this God is a holy God. 
and he's great. And, and my soul needs to be taken up with him, not merely with the passing, fading things of this world. Don't we sing a hymn? Change and decay in all around I see. This world is passing. It is fading. It's not, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's not substantial, ultimately. Ultimately, it is God himself who is filled uh, with, who is substantial, who is, who is glorious, who is far beyond our, our greatest uh, conception. Were you not made for fellowship with, with this God? A.W. Tozer uh, had many helpful things to say on the subject of worship. At one point, Tozer says uh, this, that God in our worship wants to lead us on in our love for him who first loved us. He wants to cultivate within us the adoration and admiration of which he is worthy. He wants to reveal to each of us the blessed element of spiritual fascination in true worship. He wants to teach us the wonder of being filled with moral excitement in our worship and tranced with the knowledge of who God is. He wants us to be astonished at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of Almighty God. What a quote that is. When we come to the place of worship, are we filled with Are we astonished at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of Almighty God? That's what the temple was to point us to. The greatness, the glory, the grandeur of the God whose house it was. Are we not made for fellowship with this one? Psalm 27.4 is such a great psalm in this sense. Psalm 27.4, when it says there, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Is that your desire, to gaze, as it were, upon the beauty of this Lord, and to inquire in his temple? This leads us now, third and finally, uh, to this point, that the temple was maintained on the condition of the king's perfect obedience. Uh, This glorious house in the midst of the people of Israel was then to be maintained on condition of the king's perfect obedience. And we find this right in the middle of our passage today, verses 11 through 13. If you look with me down at verse 13, Uh, the Lord makes a promise in which he says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. What a beautiful promise. Is that not our longing that God would be in the midst of us, that this God who established this temple would go with us and dwell among us and not forsake us all of our days? Do we not need the presence of God in our lives? Amidst what a wonderful promise this is. If God is not with us, indeed, all is lost. This is what we need. But how is this to be obtained? And you'll notice that there is a condition given to this promise. 
It's an if-then kind of statement. And the Lord says to Solomon this, concerning this house that you are building, and here's the condition, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So what's the condition? Well, the you, actually in verse 12, interestingly, is a you that is in the singular. And he is saying to Solomon, Solomon, as the king of my people, as the head of God's covenant people, this requirement is being made. You need to walk in my statutes, obey my rules, keep my commands, walk in them. There needs to be a firm, fervent heart commitment to me, a perfect obedience. You, the head of my covenant people, need to perfectly image me if you are to have fellowship with me in this way. What a condition this is. This is a condition of God continuing to remain among his people in this way. Well, dear friends, Solomon, as we're soon going to see, failed miserably. In fact, uh, the end of his reign is much worse than the beginning. Uh, some of the chapters that we're going to get into uh, in, a, in a few weeks are going to show just how miserably Solomon fulfilled uh, these things. Just like David, his father, before him, had miserably failed at perfect obedience. Just like all the kings after Solomon also are going to uh, miserably uh, fail. You remember that the kingdom is going to be a split. Rehoboam is going to so miserably fail that ten tribes leave with Jeroboam. And king after king after king, as we make our way through first and second kings, each of them is going to be measured against a standard at the end of their reign, and we're going to find out time and again that they failed to match the, to keep the standard that they needed to keep. And yet the Lord says, you need to walk in all of my statutes if I'm going to remain before you, if I'm going to remain with you. These kings are unable to secure God's dwelling place among us. And indeed, even after, uh, and, and it will eventually lead to Uh, The Babylonian exile, when the temple, this temple that Solomon built, is someday going to be destroyed. God's word is going to come true. The failure of these Israelite kings will lead to the destruction of the temple. And even uh, the temple itself is going to be rebuilt. Okay, but it's going to be a poor shadow of this temple. And then later, under Herod, there's going to be a certain lavishness and magnificence to Herod's uh, temple. But that, too, is going to be destroyed Uh, by uh, the Romans. Okay, time and again, there's going to be a destruction, a destruction because of the king's uh, disobedience. So whatever is to be done, will God dwell among his people? Will he not forsake his people, Israel? How can this be secured? Well, I trust that you know where this is going. It's secured magnificently in our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ the one whose meat and drink it was to do his Father's will, the one who was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, 
the one who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. The one who could ask, which one of you accuses me of sin? And no reply could be given unto him. He is the one, dear friends, who fulfilled this covenant obligation perfectly. And it is because of Christ's perfect obedience as the king and head of his covenant people that the promise remains with us that God will indeed dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake us. And we don't have such a physical temple today because that was merely a pointer and a sign to something far greater. It is that we, the very church of the living God, should become temples of His, being built together one stone upon another so that the church itself is the temple of God which He is magnificently building and dwelling among Again, the fret, and, and the promise is, as we said earlier in the sermon, that in glory, there we are going to have the presence of the living God. He, there's going to be a need, no need for a temple because He Himself will be among us as our God. We, indeed, will live and dwell forever into uh, His uh, presence. And it is because Christ, Christ is the perfect King, the head of his covenant people, the one who has secured God's permanent dwelling among us. He is the one who has assured our access into the Holy of Holies. You see, the temple was had doors. We, we kind of skipped over that at the end. There were doors in this temple. What do doors mean? Doors mean access. Friends, it wasn't access just for anyone that could go in. These doors also excluded all of us. But the good news is because Christ Jesus himself is the perfect priest and the perfect king who has fulfilled the law perfectly. Indeed, the veil has been torn in two. Uh, the, the, uh, the veil has been rent. Access to the Holy of Holies is now ours. Friends, this inner sanctuary that the everyday Israelite was never allowed to go in. Again, the everyday Israelite, they would have read this. They would have read about this. They would have said, this is what it apparently looks like inside of the Holy Holies. But they would have never been able to behold it face to face. You and I, friends, because of Jesus Christ, brought, nothing less, or brought into nothing less than the Holy of Holies. Not merely the shadow of it in an earthly temple, but the holy of holies, which is the throne room of God himself. What a glorious work this is. And so let me just say a couple of things by way of application. First of all, to say this, to ask a simple question, are you in Jesus Christ? Because there is no one else who has been able to secure fellowship with God access into his temple other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the perfect king. There is no other way at all than by Jesus. That's why we need to be in Jesus Christ. You know, to believe that there's only one way to heaven, uh, the world thinks, oh, that's such a, isn't that such an exclusive, bigoted kind of uh, thing to say? 
No, the reason we say it is because there is only one way. There's only one. Show me somebody else who, in a life of perfect obedience and a sacrificial death, has secured entrance into the presence of a holy God. Is there anyone else? And the answer is no. It's in Jesus alone. That's why we tell the world. That's why we tell each one of you, you need to be in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him to have fellowship with this God. But then the second application is this. It is, O Christian, do you prize the fellowship with God that has been secured by Jesus Christ? I mean, as we've read of this temple today, has your own heart been stirred at the greatness and grandeur and glory of this God who has deigned to dwell among his people? You ought to be amazed by it. And then be amazed that the Lord Jesus Christ has indeed won this entrance, this entrance into his presence. And cultivate this fellowship with God. Cultivate it in prayer. Cultivate it in, in worship. Speak to him. Read his word. Delight in him. This God who has, this infinite, glorious God who has deigned to have fellowship with you. Might we delight in that. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for this account of the construction of the temple. We pray, O Lord, that our own hearts would be stirred by the things that we've read. You indeed are a God who of grandeur and of glory and of splendidness far beyond our highest conception. You are a God who has deigned to dwell among his people and who has secured that through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this, O Lord, our God. Stir in our hearts an ever-increasing awe and thankfulness for the God that you are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.